Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Dan Curry, Chief Executive Officer of New Philanthropy Capital, NPC. They are a think tank and a consultancy. They focus on impact, and we're going to be looking at the impact agenda from various angles, looking at the challenges and opportunities, how it relates to trust-based philanthropy, whether impact measurement is too top-down or otherwise, other opportunities that you might have to measure whether you're making a difference, whether it's an RCT, a randomized control trial, versus quicker iterative ways, perhaps, that might be more appropriate to your organization. Whatever the case, if you care about making a difference with regards to philanthropy and making an impact, I think you'll find today's conversation very interesting. So without further ado, Dan, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thanks, Alberta. Great to be here. Excellent. Well, it's good to see you again. I've, uh, I always hold new philanthropy capital in high esteem, and I hear much about your work. You're the chief executive there, and for our listeners who may not be familiar with NPC, uh, New Philanthropy Capital, What's the organization all about? Well, Albert, what we're all about is trying to make the impact of the sector as, as large as it can be. Um, that, that's the charities and the philanthropists and the grant makers, uh, equally the way government uh, behaves to the sector. So we're very obsessed about the impact agenda, if you like. So uh, for the amount of money you've got, the amount of resources, the amount of volunteers and all that stuff, are you allocating it in the way that maximizes social impact? Um, we try and help people think about that. A lot of work on theory of change because a lot of organizations get a bit lost in the nonprofit world about exactly what they're trying to do, what they're trying to achieve, and what a, you know, and whether it makes any sense. They're, they're, they're thinking about how that works. Then we can help them with kind of measurement frameworks um, to try and establish whether it really did work or not, um, and that kind of thing. Uh, and I guess we work partly as a consultancy. We're half consultancy, so we have clients from the funder community, philanthropy community, you know, the, the nonprofit charity community, occasionally from government and so on. Um, but we're also a kind of think tank because we're trying uh, both to influence the sector, all of the sector, mainly in the UK, but, you know, abroad as well. And we get a lot of uh, followers on our different things from particularly the US, actually, quite interestingly. Um, and also because we're trying to advocate, certainly within the UK, the government when it's doing things which make it harder for the sector to, to have impact. So it's quite a lot of stuff, quite ambitious. We're about 50 people. Um, uh, we've been going for 20 years. This is our 20th anniversary. Ah, happy birthday. Thank you, Albert. And, and interestingly, we were started by a bunch of socially concerned, mainly Goldman Sachs people 20 years ago, which is slightly why we have the name, which we've stuck with, because we don't only do philanthropy. Now, and they, they were guys uh, with some money. Um, I think Goldman said IPO'd or something at the time. Uh, and they cared and they wanted to give some of it away. And they said, you know what, you come to that the sector and you think, how the hell do I work out who to support? Um, you know, I'm used to in the private sector, you know, I've got all the metrics and there's analysts doing stuff and all the rest of it. And then you come to the nonprofit sector and it's kind of, uh, uh. um, so that was the original idea. Um, I mean, some of the things they hoped to achieve were slight fantasy, but we've, we've hung on to the main point, which is, can we help the sector be more impactful? So that's, that's what we do. Excellent. And I know you come from a sort of think tank policy background. Yeah, I mean, I'm an economist by profession. So the whole concept of kind of trying to think about evaluation and impact and all the problems about that, you know, very 
familiar to me. I mean, I worked uh, in in uh, public policy. I was a civil servant. I was a special advisor, political special advisor to uh, most of the Labour government, ending up in Downing Street when Gordon Brown was the prime minister. So I kind of, to MPC, I brought a lot of uh, thinking about uh, comms and policy uh, and all the rest of it. Rather helpfully, I did uh, immediately the the year before I came to MPC. I did a year at FTI, which is a big US consultancy, which was setting up in the in the UK. So it, strangely enough, I ended up having all the kind of skills that that MPC needed. But but certainly, you know that you know how do we how do we influence a sector? How do we influence policy of governments, local governments, all the rest of it is kind of familiar stuff to me. I once ran a local government think tank as well, so. I know quite a lot about how that sector thinks and works and, and and the interaction actually often between how the sort of local government councils and so on work with philanthropists and their local charities is, is a is a thing of a lot of interest to me. And it very often doesn't work nearly as well as it should. Mm. And that balance between think tank and consultancy, you mentioned you, you, you have uh, a foot on each side. I imagine perhaps it's easier to do the think tank bit and influencing than the consultancy side. Uh, I think I think the opposite actually. Okay. <laughs> I'd say all better because our consultancy, which is about half our staff work on, and they don't only work on consultancy; they do other stuff. But obviously, you know, we've got to, people have got to want to hire us. Essentially, we're doing strategy consulting. We do all sorts of things in in practice. You know, we're a bunch of sort of clever people who care about the sector, and uh, and we get hired to do all sorts of things. But it's essentially strategy consulting. Um, people come to us; um, they like what we're doing. They have to pay, so they must like it. We thought it might all disappear during COVID when people were a bit short of money, but it but it didn't. So that sort of works quite well. It throws off a small surplus. But the other side of it, of course, we have to fund as well. Uh, and it's uh, it's quite difficult to fundraise, quite frankly, for that, because, you know, we're not a frontline organisation. It's not like you give us money and the children get the meal uh, or something like that. We are much more if you help us. We will help the whole sector change in different ways. And so in a sense, you get a multiplier effect. But it's quite a difficult ask uh, at times. And there's a limited number of sort of philanthropists and grant making foundations that that want to fund that sort of thing. They kind of have a bent to, you know, understandably, uh, to a, a particular cause. And it's a bit more frontline. So it, it, it's it's not it's not easy. It's not been easy through the years I've been at uh, MPC. Um, but I think it's very important because, I mean, I, I think the nonprofit sector is one where you know, there is, if you like, a lack of infrastructure organisations compared to the private sector or the public sector, and partly because because of the reason I just said. And yet I think it needs a lot of it. You know, we've got just in the UK, you know, we have whatever it is, 160, 170,000 registered charities, loads more that are not registered community groups. They're all trying to do their best, but they've got very little support. You know, and sometimes I say to, to some of them, particularly charities who it's really difficult to run a charity. And sometimes, you know, they say, you know, MPC says all this stuff we should do. But quite frankly, if I've got to the end of the month, we haven't gone bust and I've helped some people, you know, I've done a pretty good job. And I say, well, yeah, I, I totally understand that. And to some extent, we're trying to do the thinking and pushing out the ideas to you in a simple way. And, and simply, sim similarly with the funding community, which I've always felt, you know, notoriously, it's very difficult for them to get feedback, genuine feedback, because nobody is nasty to the funder. They always say you're great and wonderful. Um, but they tell us, you know, it's a complete nightmare. We've got five different funders. They all want different reporting at different times, although we don't think any of them ever look at any of it. They don't share anything. So we, you know, we, we both work with the 
the funding sector, but we're also critical. And I think because, it, on, if you like, on behalf of, of lots of people who have problems with them, don't want to say it. So getting the mix right. And I mean, just the last thing to say about that. I mean, I'm very strongly of the view that if we were just a think tank thinking great thoughts, um, but disconnected from the sector, that would not, we wouldn't do the, the, the as good work and we wouldn't have the cut through. So the fact we're doing, we're inside a lot of uh, grant makers, working with philanthropists, we, we get into charities, we know what's going on. So when we come and, and talk about what we want to do on the think tank side, it's rooted in you know constant conversations and understanding what's actually happening in real time in the sector. I think that's really important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you are yourselves a registered charity. Yeah, we are. We are indeed. Always have been, yeah. Yeah. And what's the deal with impact these days? So it's a, it's one of those loaded words, right? And you can maybe like Marmite, you love it, hate it, I'm not sure. Um, where do we stand with impact? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a good question, Alberto. I mean, I think when, when MPC founded, or even when I arrived, which is a decade ago now, extraordinarily, I was a young man when I started. Um, I think that the, the big, you know, attempt uh, was to try and get the sector to really think about impact. On the whole, you know, the sector is driven by passion and mission. Uh, and that's a terrific thing. And if you ever take that away from the sector, you've kind of lost an awful lot. But but the question, yes, you've done, you've done your best you can for these young people with mental health issues or whatever, but could you have done better? Could you have spent your money, used your staffing better to achieve more impact? I think it's a really important one. And I guess a lot of what the impact agenda was, was um, trying to say that slightly countercultural to the sector. Um, and then, of course, trying to help people think about, well, OK, if that's the case, how do you go about doing it and measuring it? And I think I think mostly, certainly in the UK, um, in, in most countries, that kind of concept that impact matters, I think, has taken root. I don't think you very often get a philanthropist who say, I, you know, I, I, I don't care too much about it. I mean, you know, some some just want to, you know, give their money to the, you know, boost the art center or and have their name on a new building or something. But but a, a lot of them do want to uh, try and make life better for people in all sorts of ways. And they they do. They wouldn't say the impact doesn't matter. You'll find very few sort of nonprofits in it around that will say it doesn't matter. They then sometimes got some reasons why they don't do very much about it. They'll say, well, you know, what we do, it's very hard to measure or it costs too much to do it and it's disproportionate. Some of that is all true. So I think I think the impact agenda has has, has done well. <laughs> I think it's helped the sector. I think it's helped philanthropists and everybody. Um, sometimes, from my view, it goes too far. The effect of altruism movement, for instance, I think is slightly strange. Um, but, but I think it's been a good thing. I would say, I mean, there's... There's been a little bit of a sort of backlash in recent times, which has slightly come through what what people call trust-based philanthropy. Um, and a lot of trust-based philanthropy is terrific and stuff we've been advocating for ages. So, for instance, a lot of trust-based philanthropy, which kind of appeared and, and, and got momentum during COVID, really. Um, and a lot of it said, let's give up, give much more unrestricted funding and stop being so restrictive, something we, we've always asked for. But there's one strand of it, which not everybody goes with, which says you basically just, you know, you trust the grantee uh, and you don't need to you don't need to be wondering or, or, or trying to ask for questions like, well, yeah, so we gave you the money to help this group of people. But did it actually help this group of people and how much did it help this group of people? 
and all that. And there's, so there's a bit of a sort of thinking and all this impact agenda was a bit over the top. I think that's a problem. But I think something else that's been knocking around, which I think really is important and we're certainly trying to take on board, is that the impact agenda was a bit too top down. Mm -hmm. You know, so it was about, you know, you've got to collect your data, ideally your longitudinal data, uh, and you've got to do all sorts of things with it and and uh, and do sorts of analysis. And what it kind of was a massive danger, it wasn't always the case, but it missed out the people you were trying to help their lived experience, what a community felt about things, um, the whole diversity aspect. And I think that's I think that's a fair critique of the early impact agenda. And so for me, the exciting thing at the moment is how do we put that top down stuff, which you might say is a bit sort of like professional expertise and all that kind of stuff. And how do you mix that up with the bottom up stuff, which is the voices of the people you're trying to help and, and, and all that kind of thing. So I think it's quite an interesting time uh, in the whole uh, impact agenda. At the moment, you know, certainly in the UK, I'm sure it's true in most countries, the sector, you know, money is short, demand is going up, we've got a cost of living crisis. So demand for what a lot of organisations do is going up. Uh, you know, uh, it's not like there's loads more money flowing into the sector. So I think it's even more crucial that we try and use the funding, the resources, the people, the volunteers that we have in the most effective ways, because we basically let down the people we claim to want to help if we don't do that. It's interesting you're mentioning trust-based philanthropy. It's a topic that didn't really exist on the podcast when we started back in 2019, even though it did exist in the in the, in the field. Um, but now you hear about it pretty much in every conversation. And that issue of impact, impact measurement, whether it's top-down or otherwise, and how do you do that? Um, it used to be uh, people always referring to randomized control trials, the gold standard, and so forth. Um, where where is the direction of travel if there is such a thing? And I remember, and actually, not that long ago, I had uh, Lawrence Haddad on the show. He's the the head of the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, and he's saying, "Look, uh, some of these massive studies you just can't do right now. We just need some quicker." quicker ways of, uh, of, of analyzing what conceivably works a bit. Maybe it's not a statistically robust, but it still gives us pretty much what we need in terms of the insight. Yeah, no, I, I, really interesting, Albert. And, and, and just a few thoughts. I think one is that, you know, the randomized control trials as the kind of gold standard, which everyone should try and hit, you know, it, it, it is a bit crazy, quite honestly. And it's, and it's carried over from the medical world. Uh, and I think that partly because they're very difficult to do in the social sector, partly because with social policy, uh, something that you work out works in a particular town at a particular place and you've done a randomized control trial on it does not mean it will work in another town at another time. It's not like taking a medicine, you know? So uh, even, even, you know, whether it really will tell you, aha, this has been RCT, you know, in, in uh, this town and therefore we should now put it all over the country. It doesn't tell you that. Um, and so we've argued this, the kind of people talk about the ladder of evaluation with the RCT at the stop top. And we, we tend to argue that find the place that's comfortable for you and do that as well as you can, much better than trying to go up. But the other thing we're saying is we've, we've spent a lot of time with some success in trying to produce something that will help uh, smaller organizations and bigger ones um, do something that's like a quasi RCT. So it, so we started off, we were working with a lot of charities that worked in prisons. And what they said was, you know, the reason we do this is we think it reduces reoffending rates. But they really didn't know whether it did 
do that or not because they found it very, very difficult to follow up. Uh, with the prisoners, you know, they tend not to answer emails and, <laughs> and fill in surveys a couple of years later and so on. In fact, of course, the government, and this will be true in most countries, has got a lot of data on these people and what happens to them a couple of years later. So if you can present to, to somebody, you know, here's the 100 people we work with, they can tell you whether they reoffended or not a couple of years later. And then they can also do, you can also, so that's government administrative data. And you can use that to create a quasi-control group. It's called propensity score matching. Um, it's not quite as an RCT. Uh, and so that, you know, we advocated for that for a long time. It, the Ministry of Justice in the UK took it up. They run something now called the Justice Data Lab. So if you're a charity, you can put in your data and they will tell you whether you had an impact or not. Um, so it's been very powerful. Uh, we've been trying for some time to get one going on the employment side. Good conversations with the Department of Work and Pensions in the UK. They're piloting. Finally, they're piloting something at the moment. So those I mean, the idea there is, you know, there's all this administrative data that governments uh, collect uh, in all countries. And if you can just make it more accessible. And, and in this case, you know, the charity doesn't really understand have to understand what's going on. So it's not like they because people often say, well, Government data should be more more open, and I agree with that. But if you're a small charity, it's still pretty difficult. It, I, I spend time because I'm a sad economist on the Office of National Statistics site to try and look at data, and it's pretty difficult even for me. So, so, so those kind of things are really, really powerful, and I think you know we we uh, you know we, we should have them everywhere. Um, so, so there are some things you can do. So those things get close to RCTs, but as I say, in general. That's not where most organisations uh, want to head, um, unless you're working in places where, where it's much easier to, to do it. And, and RCTs are incredibly expensive as well. And there's moral issues as well about, you know, because you've got to do the intervention on one set of people and not another. And people get, you know, rightly, particularly in the charity sector, even more so very uncomfortable about that mm. kind of thing. Is there a focal point, a key area that you'd recommend people to go looking for in terms of becoming better versed on impact? And I guess, obviously, there's you guys with with all your experience. There are a lot of other foundations out there that are also having the same sort of, um, I, I think of Children's Investment Fund Foundation, for instance, and Anna Hakobian, who's the, the chief impact officer there. And she was saying, look, um, we don't want people to have to reinvent the wheel every time. We we sort of develop some ways of measuring additionality and impact that I think would be useful for others. So, And we make this as a public good. And I'm just thinking um, the think tanks and consultancies like you, the big funders who have you know, the Ivy Leagues working for them and so forth, where does everything come together? If Is there such a place where then a small charity CEO could say, yeah, okay, let me go take a look there? I mean, you're probably right. There's not enough of, of that kind of going on. There is, I think, among those of us who kind of think about impact measurement on the consultancy or think tank side, you know, there's quite a lot of talking. There's Social Value UK, Social Value International and so on. Um, and we we talk to those kind of people. Uh, and, and there's a certain amount of agreement. We're all sort of not over happy with the traditional social return on investment calculations, which push the data far too much. You know, that's where you get one pound in, 18 pounds back, and the numbers. Uh, I say this an ex-Treasury person, you know, uh, they certainly wouldn't convince anyone in the Treasury. Um, you know, not that people have done terrible things. You just have, don't have enough data to really work out the additionality uh, and so on. But I think you're right. I think a lot of foundations are doing interesting things. I mean, in another sort of part of MPC, we've got a big project called Open Philanthropy going at the minute, which is really a lot about saying, 
that foundations should be and philanthropists should be sharing a lot more their data, their methodologies. There should be a lot more open source, um, you know, and, and not each, each organization kind of inventing itself thing from scratch. Uh, so hopefully that will, you know, that will encourage some of that kind of thing. Um, I mean, the other thing just to say, which I kind of have, I suppose I haven't said yet, which is there is a terrible danger, I think, and, and certainly we think that, you know, impact measurement and all this kind of stuff, it's not about, it shouldn't primarily be about proving that your thing worked. Of course, that's part of what you hope to get out of it. And, and you know, charities are often trying to wor are worried that the funder wants them to prove the thing worked. What it should be about is learning, um, uh, you know, and then, and then improving. And obviously, and often, you know, particularly um, nonprofits doing work in developing countries or with vulnerable communities or whatever, they are going to try some things and these things won't work because um, not everything works, you know, and we want them to be innovating. We want them to be trying new things uh, and we want them to be evaluating it, not, but not with the fear that, oh, my God, if we go back to the funder and we say, you know, we tried all this stuff. It didn't work. And the funder says, oh, well, you're not getting any more money again. Um, I mean, interesting. We found this with the Justice Data Lab that not as many, particularly to start with, charities used it as we thought. And it was partly because if you were a charity being funded quite nicely by a grant-making organisation or whatever, uh, and they came and visited and they met some of the people and they heard stories, you know, Fred's life was transformed because we did art with him once a month and and they loved it all. You you really didn't want to know, actually, was it in, in aggregate, in a decent bit of work, actually reducing reoffending rates or not? So... I think we have to make clear that all this kind of trying to assess impact is about trying to improve and learn. It's, it, it can't be on the primary, prime reason, can't be in some way to kind of sort of prove, which of course you never can in social policy, but to prove that, that the, your thing sort of worked in a sort of, so that the funders are happy, basically. Yeah. I remember, well, in quite a few organizations, actually, there's some somewhat of a tension internally between the those who are doing the fundraising and those who are doing the program delivery and the fundraisers are always like asking for the impact you know give me the impact so i can go to the donor i can give them this and that and the other uh, and the program people a lot of times they're, oh, i don't know about that i don't know about measuring that because they're just very skeptical yeah and i mean right? it's difficult you know i mean one of the things to start with we were quite pleased to see because we pushed all this whole impact agenda and various organizations started alongside the annual report that have an impact report But if you look at the impact report, a lot of it, it was just about activity. You know, we helped this many people you know, live that terrible lives touched metric, which thank God most people don't use anymore. But you still find it knocking around. Um, and, and, you know, it, it was okay. That was, you know, better than nothing, I guess. But it really didn't have much about impact, really. Um, and it, 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 it a lot of them, particularly in the early days, were sort of you kind of felt they were in by, by or for the fundraising team. And I know look organizations have to fundraise it's not an easy thing to do we have to do it it's not an easy thing to do so you tend to put your best foot forward um but then again you know i think yeah and, and this comes back to the funding community to some extent you know uh, that that sort of fear that a lot of organizations have about exposing stuff that didn't work because they worry about funders and, and if funders could be more clear you know look so, sometimes we, we fund we know it may not work you're doing something really difficult with people who are difficult to help and Other things may happen that make it, you know, who knew that COVID was going to happen or wars in Ukraine or whatever. Um, but I think that would that would kind of change the relationship and stop them being so, so defensive. Um, uh, and then and then we learn. No. Yeah. So and again, I think philanthropists vary. I mean, I know um, 
I'm on the board of uh, St Mungo's, which is a big homelessness charity uh, in in uh, mainly based in London, but around the place. And in, in terms of our philanthropic funding, we get some people who give to us just because they think homelessness terrible thing, and we sound like an all right organisation. And we get others that say, I'm going to fund, not too restricted, but I'm going to fund this thing. And I want you to put some evaluation around it. Because if it works, then I, I think we should be doing more of it ourselves and then spreading it to the rest of the sector. So again, you know, philanthropists come in all shapes and sizes. That's something we well know at MPC. Yeah. Are you finding an increasing appetite for people who are wishing to fund research on what works and what doesn't work because traditionally many people like you you alluded to a little bit earlier oh well you know i'd like to see the evidence and then i can back it or not back it you know depending on what's out there but that somewhat mitigates the risk to some extent but many people view philanthropy as risk capital in itself and maybe there's a a growing appetite for funding that research that creation of that body of evidence right yeah i i, I wouldn't say it's gushing gushing through our accounts um and I mean, it's interesting about it because I think there's another strand that's happened in the last couple of years, which is a very good strand, but you can see it is pushing slightly the other way, which was particularly on the back of Black Lives Matter. Um, a lot of people, including ourselves, felt that, you know, what, what people were tending to invest in and, and give their philanthropic money to was organisations that had good governance, they had a strategy. If you ask them about impact, they could tell you the answer to it. You know, they could tell you something that was sensible. And that gives you some comfort that this organization, if you fund it, will create some impact, you know. But of course, what that was meaning is we were not funding, let's say, small, quite new black-led organizations in their cities or something, because they didn't, you know, governance probably was a bit not non-existent. They didn't have a strategy. And and, and everybody thought, well, hang on, that's that's not what we kind of intended. So there's been some move and we, and we, we certainly in, in working with our clients, you know, have, have, have said to some extent, what is your appetite for risk? It's kind of what you were saying. You know, if you, if you only invest in all the safe ones, you'll certainly create impact. These are good organizations, nothing wrong with them. But if you don't invest in some of these smaller ones where maybe they won't have much impact, maybe the money will disappear. Maybe the, you know, governance collapses and it was all reliant on one heroic person or whatever. Um, but if you don't fund them, then some of these issues will never get solved. And I think so that pulls in a slightly different way. I mean, my view is is, is even where you're going to do more. Um, let's just get from funding out to these organizations, more grassrootsy, as, if it as it were, with sort of poorer governance. I still think you should be trying to think about how we're going to assess whether that works, because we've got to think about our next funding round. And I don't think you get out of it, which what which some foundations have tried to do is they've said, well, what we'll do um is you know because we don't know we don't understand the sort of non-white community and all the rest of it lot foundations certainly uk ones you know um are pretty all white but we'll give it to an intermediary organization and they will pass it on but i still think you've got to understand well what did the intermediary organization do how did it decide who to give it to what actually did happen because if we don't do all that kind of stuff you know it will well, it could well be that the funding is not is not helping people to live better lives, which is what we're all trying to do. So, so that's an interesting pull going the other way. As I say, I think some people then added on to kind of trust based philanthropy kind of idea that we shouldn't be asking questions. We just give it to sort of organisations that's you know we think are maybe okay, and we just keep our fingers crossed. I, I don't think that's good enough. Should the sector be embracing more risk? And by that, I mean sensible risk. I don't mean completely crazy risk. That's but... completely crazy. 
I think it should. I mean, look, each person, certainly individual philanthropists, have very different appetites for risk, just as they would in private sector investing, you know. And so you've got to work with that. Um, I've always found that charities themselves are more risk averse than you'd expect. So I've always been struck by you, you can look at a board of an organization and you'll get some people there who made their their money, their career by risk taking. When they come to being on the board of a charity, suddenly that all goes out the window. They become quite conservative. They get very worked up about kind of debt and stuff like that. Uh, they don't want to be the person who this charity that's been going for the last 80 years collapses on their watch or whatever. They're worried that if something goes wrong, the media will write it up and their careers kind of, you know, which has been glorious, is now sullied. So they get very conservative. So if you if you have that happening at that end, and then the funders being pretty conservative as well, I think we end up not taking off risk. And as you say, Alberto, I think one of the roles of philanthropic funding and and the whole sector is to is to try and be innovative um, uh, and take risks that governments can't. You know, politicians find it very difficult to, you know, turn around to the public and say, yeah, we tried this thing for five years. We put all this money into it. It's complete, you know, didn't work at all. They just will not risk doing that. And so if anyone's going to take the risk, it's got to be the sort of, you know, the nonprofit sector, really. And so from a policy perspective, since you are a policy person, what can we do in order to encourage more risk, more sensible risk taking? which to us would equate to ultimately more impact. I mean, what can you do from a policy perspective to incentivize that? Considering obviously that these are not for-profit entities and conceivably the incentives are different, obviously. I, I, it's a really good question. I think, it is, I think it's very difficult. Um, I, think, I think the whole sector, certainly in the UK, feels that it hasn't for some years had a government that's trying to work alongside it. I mean, you know, the sector wants to be independent. That's the whole point of it. It's not part of government and everything else, but nevertheless, it should have a, a half decent relationship. And that seemed to be not really around in recent times. So I think that's a problem. I mean, you know, you can see some people have seen kind of the rise of social investment uh, as slightly more kind of risk capital. Um, although, you know, it's um, a lot of it has gone into fairly safe things like housing, quite frankly, you know, a nice safe asset with revenue streams. It hasn't really gone into into very risky stuff. You know, impact investing is another area. Um, again, you know, though a lot of people in impact investing are looking for market returns as well as a bit of social, um, feeling good socially, a um, little bit of impact washing in there, I think. So So we we dabble in that area to try and make sure impact investing is about impact. So I think that there's some of that stuff. I think the, 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 the funding of... The way things work is always going to be a bit, um, you know, is going to make people a bit risk averse. Uh, you know, charities, in, in, you know, typically don't have a balance sheet. They have almost no reserves. If they have too much reserves, nobody will give them any money. They say, well, I've got too many reserves. If they have too few reserves, people say, oh, you look like you're going to collapse. We won't give you any money. So they live in this kind of little window. And that is not conducive to taking risk and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. So I'm not sure that sort of you know uh, it's some kind of fancy tax change or something to incentivize kind of more risk taking in the way that we do let's say for kind of entrepreneurs or you know, private equity and so forth people have played around with that um and i'm not i'm not convinced that they quite frankly those don't turn into you know um the, the tax man's nightmare of, of tax loopholes rather than actually delivering a hell of a lot uh out there we have a social investment tax relief in the uk which 
has helped a bit, you know, and there's always a question about whether the government's going to renew it or not. So there's bits and pieces you can do, but no silver bullet there. No silver bullet. I mean, governance as well. I don't know whether our regulator, the Charity Commission, could say some more things about risk, you know, and that you won't be for the high jump if you uh, if you took a risk either as a funder or as a as a charity. Um, so there's there's bits and pieces you could nudge towards that. I think Alberta, but I think in the end, you know that. The sector's got to think, what are we here for? You know, um, if we're not if we're not taking some some risk, not, as you say, sensible, sensible risk, because there's, there's a lot of stuff. You know, I mean, one of the things always frustrates me is, you, you know, funders often want to f- they cl- they always claim this is not the case, but they often want to fund a new innovative thing. And so if you're a charity in your town, you've been delivering this thing for years and it's worked and you know it's work. It's pretty dull, but it works. You try and get funding for that. It's quite difficult. You don't get to the top of the list at the when the when the grant makers trying to think who are we going to give. They want this new, exciting thing. So you know we got to be careful. You know, new, innovative does is not always the right thing to do. It's a hell of a lot of stuff that's being done every day by charities, supporting communities, supporting people, and we just need to fund it. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. You touched a little bit on impact investing, social investing. And, uh, and even impact washing. And let me ask you a little bit about that because impact is at the core of, of new philanthropy capital. Um, I hear, to me, well, I hear a lot of people looking at impact investing in many different ways. And uh, on the one hand, you do have these people looking for social returns in conjunction with financial returns, happy to have a consent, you know, not, not needing those risk-adjusted rates of return that you would expect. But then you start having a lot of these sort of publicly, you know, public equity, uh, markets labeling things as impact funds, which maybe they're ESG integrated, but are they really impact funds? Impact investing? No, I, I mean you know th- you know that's the worry. I mean you know we we got involved in impact investing um, partly because you know it, it, a lot of the same kind of things we've been trying to do about how do you assess impact and and so on are relevant there. And you know my view is it's it, it's an enormous amount of capital. Uh, and you know if you could just make it one or two percent more socially impactful you've done a pretty good job um but there is a there is a terrible danger at the moment that that it becomes a bit meaningless i mean it's really an interesting area at the minute alberta i mean you know we've all been reading kind of little bits of backlash on the kind of esg agenda um and so on so how deep that goes um and we've always you know been trying to think quite a lot about the s in the esg and we we, we just um put something out recently with, that we did with pwc about about that because everyone kind of understands the e you can argue as about whether those metrics are quite as good as people think and and g is governance and so it's a bit easier to understand but what on earth what is the s you know nobody quite quite knows but but so that i think those things have, have, have you know come in and, and you know investors are, are to some extent taking it more seriously but um I, I i worry that the whole impact investing agenda will collapse if it turns out that what claimed at impact funds really are not they may have a little bit of you know we won't invest in certain things that kind of stuff which has you know been around before uh you won't, won't invest in tobacco or we won't invest in you know arms or whatever it is but that's not quite what the way the thing's being sold so I think it's a kind of important period, the next little period as to whether, and of course people have had problems because everyone's been coming up with different metrics and all the rest of it. Um, and it's not easy. Um, we, we've done some work uh, trying to, um, trying to think of, you know, what, what, what are the, what are the uh, characteristics of an, in, of, of investments a priori, i.e. before you've made the investment, which mean they're likely to create social impact. 
um, which which has been helpful, I think, to some investors. And we and we do some stuff for impact investors uh, trying to assess, I say, that social social side of things. Um, but sometimes even then, you know, which is fair enough, you know, we will whether we say, yes, socially, this looks good or not. They'll also do their financial assessment and they may decide to invest, even though socially it's not producing anything because it's got a good financial return. You know, I mean, there's a balance in there. So to me, a lot of the stuff coming into the market being labeled impact funds um, are nothing to do with impact investing, you know, period. So without getting into the details of who or where, but <laughs> that's my take. <laughs> that's my another take. podcast. That's a whole different <laughs> podcast, yeah. Uh, you mentioned Bob, well, you didn't mention Bob Moritz, but you mentioned PwC. We did have Bob Moritz on the show, uh, global global head of PwC, and interesting, very nice conversation on the sort of work they're doing to, to try to drive forward the uh, sustainability agenda. Um, I always like to ask my guests for a key takeaway before we uh, before we wrap things up. Uh, tell me, what would that be for you? What's that one thing that you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they uh, finish listening to today's show? Well, I guess I'm slightly repeating something I said a bit earlier, but I, I think the exciting thing, you know, on the whole impact agenda, which I think, as you gather, I think it's really important for the sector. As I say, it's always a bit countercultural, so you have to keep pushing it. But it's how we combine the stuff which is kind of top down you know, not necessarily RCTs, but that kind of thing with the kind of the voices of the communities and people with lived experience and all that. And how do we bring those things together in the decisions, uh, in the learning we make, the decisions we make? And it's it's not easy, as, as we've discussed, it varies in different places. But if, if everybody is kind of trying to think about that, I think we'll we'll create more, you know, good lives for more people. And that's what it's all about. Excellent. Dan, look, thank you so much uh, for joining us on the Do One Better podcast today sharing your uh, your insight and your energy and i appreciate it very much it's been great seeing you again and speaking with you again pleasure alberto perfect and that's a wrap thanks very much for tuning in as always you've been listening to a great chat with dan corey chief executive officer of new philanthropy capital for information about this interview and nearly 200 other interviews and case studies with remarkable leaders in philanthropy sustainability and social entrepreneurship just visit our website at ligi.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Very much enjoy producing today's show for you. Found it informative, insightful, and I'm very energized. So I hope you are as well when it comes to the world of impact and, uh, and making a difference for the world around you. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I'll catch you next week.